Hey there, friends. Before we get to a brand new episode of the official Do Good Better podcast, we want to thank you, the listener, for subscribing and sharing with all of your nonprofit friends. Most importantly, we need to be thanking the sponsors to this very show. Hey, if you're in the market for a CRM system that makes your life easier, there is no better item in your fundraising toolbox than DonorDoc. DonorDoc is not only the premier sponsor to the show, it is the premier and intuitive CRM system that not only has everything you want, but has zero things you don't. No one needs complicated, especially when you wear 10,000 different hats at your nonprofit. So get DonorDoc and use Do Good Better at checkout and get a month free to try it out. Thanks, DonorDoc, for being an awesome sponsor. Hey, speaking of life being easier, fundraising is not. And as a listener to this podcast, I hope you found some insight and tips and tricks on how to make it a little less challenging. But if you're looking for a more content, more done-for-you templates, weekly support, and a community of other do-gooders like yourself to either commiserate, challenge, co-create, or celebrate with, join Do Good University. Hey, it's our brand new membership site. We have hours and hours of on-demand trainings, exclusive guest expert webinars, and access to the entire Do Good Better crew to answer all of your pressing questions. All of that is for an affordable monthly fee. So visit dogooduniversity.com or click the link in the show notes for details. Hey, get ready for another episode of the official Do Good Better podcast. Hey, nonprofit leader, you do awesome nonprofit things. And our friends at Pro Resources do awesome HR things. Now, why is that important? Because you have too many things to do than worry about payroll and compliance and benefits and admin and workers' comp. You've got donors to get, you've got clients to serve, and you've got a community to make awesome. So let our friends at Pro Resources help you. Go to ProResourcesHR.com. Learn about how they can help your organization not worry about all the HR things. They've got you covered. Go to ProResourcesHR.com. Let them help you be awesomer at HR while you become awesomer as a nonprofit. ProResourcesHR.com or call them at 800-776-4671. And make sure you mention Do Good Better. Get your special nonprofit rate. Welcome to the official Do Good Better podcast, where we help small and medium-sized nonprofits do good better. Join host Patrick Kirby as he chats about the latest nonprofit trends, challenges, and success stories. Plus, you'll get actionable advice to help you be even awesomer. If you're a nonprofit professional, volunteer, or supporter, this show is for you. We'll tackle all the big topics like fundraising, marketing, and volunteer management. Our only goal? to bring you the information and inspiration you need to take your organization to the next level. So grab that giant caffeinated or adult beverage and get ready to do good better. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome to the official Do Good Better podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Kirby. And of course, we talk with people who are going to inspire and help our small and medium-sized nonprofits do good, better. Typically, I know that we have a lot of experts on this. It's going to give you help on uh, marketing and fundraising and all that good stuff. Sometimes, though, I love when we get an opportunity to interview an individual who's actually in the trenches the way that you are. 
uh, who's doing the good work and the and putting on the good fight. And uh, no matter what size of your organization, whether you're big, small, or everything in between, sometimes you need a little bit of inspiration to go. You know what? I uh, I that's that's uh, resonating in my brain. And oh, this is what they're doing. This might help us as well. That's what today's episode is. So I want you to sit back and you want you to relax. You don't have to learn anything. You don't need to take any sort of rabid notes on how to do some tech stuff. We're going to learn and be inspired today. I am ecstatic uh, that we get uh, our guest today. Emily, she's the uh, co-founder and uh, CEO of CORE out of Los Angeles, California. And welcome to the official Do Good Better podcast. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. I am very excited to be here. I am very excited to have you here too. So um, we're going to talk very candidly about not only the work that you do, uh, but kind of the, some of the behind the scenes work that, again, some of our nonprofit friends, uh, we were talking a little bit before you hopped on, um, everything has to be, or you think it has to be sunshine and rainbows and puppy dogs and ice cream. And that sometimes is not the case, especially in the work that we do, um, whether it's humanitarian or developmental disability or delay or education or whatever the whatever the, the nonprofit du jour you work at. Um, I'm excited to have this particular conversation. But before we start, there's a lot of people who are listening that maybe don't know, they should, who you are, what you do. So could you give us a 5,000 foot view of who you are, what you do and why we're talking sure. today? So I'm a Los, La, original Los, Los Angelian. Um, who has been in this humanitarian and development space for the last, I would say, 20 years um, and really jumped into the space because actually of 9-11. Mm. Being in New York and seeing that happen really propelled me into a completely different trajectory to figure out how to be a part of the world and prevent things like that happening, which opened up many doors and led me to where I am today. Um, CORE started out as an organization after the uh, Haiti earthquake in 2010. Um, I had been living there for about four years at the time when the earthquake happened. Um, and Sean Penn and his crew came down initially just for two weeks, bringing some medical materials. Um, and to be frank, we were not friends. We did not like each other immediately, right off the bat. <laughs> but, you know, he was there living on a displacement camp for about nine months. And my sort of initial um, dislike of him kind of changed over time, seeing that he was legitimately there to do the work and not just for the cameras. Um, and we became really good friends ever since then. We stayed very, very close um, until about 2016. When I was working for the UN at the time, he asked me to come on board and help him um, sort of revamp his organization, which I did. And that's what changed. And now we're here as CORE. We're a disaster relief, crisis relief organization. Um, we responded heavily to natural disasters initially. Um, but during COVID, really expanded our reach in the United States, which I never expected to do. That was something that was completely um, not in the game plan. Um, but we jumped in and, and ended up, you know, providing about five to six million tests during COVID and over 3.5 million vaccines, um, focusing on underserved communities with high uh, COVID rates. Um, so that was a huge uh, inflection point for us. And 
now we're sort of going back to our original mission, which is responding to crises around the world. We're in Ukraine and India and um, still in Haiti. We've been in Haiti consistently since 2010. And yeah, so you'll see us around in the U.S. as well. I, I, humanitarian crisis is such an interesting nonprofit work to be in because the scale on devastation, impact, etc. seems almost untenable in, in, in its solution, right? And yeah. um, I, I think that's where, uh, in, regardless of whatever size of nonprofit that you work in, you, uh, the looking at the problem and its actual scale can be like, I can't wrap my head around what looks like wins. Yeah. How do you, uh, and especially as an organization that is in such dire places at the time that you just enter in, how do you wrap your head around small victories? That allow you to continue yeah. the work, knowing that it's going to take for however long you're going to be in that particular place. We lived this several times. I think Haiti and COVID were the two big pillars that kind of really have created this important foundation for us. I mean, Haiti, when that happened, you know, I'd been living there. My entire house was destroyed. The city was destroyed. You saw, you know, multiple story buildings that were just completely crashed down on the ground where you couldn't even walk down the streets that you used to because you had, you know, three story high uh, rubble just blocking everything. And all the reports, every expert weighed in and said, you know, it was going to take several decades to clear the rubble in Port-au-Prince. And... When you hear that, it just feels so overwhelmingly impossible. Like, I remember feeling like, who am I to actually take place and try to do something in this impossible thing that just feels just too much? It's too much while you're also dealing and grieving with all the things that you're you're grieving with being part of that that disaster. And for us, the team and you know the 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 Haitian staff members that had lost family members, they just needed to do something, right? They needed to just be part of something. Just pick up and literally get a shovel and start digging. Mm-hmm. We got into the rubble removal space as a small organization back then, and rather than the you know 50 years that was estimated to clear all the rubble it took less than 10 it took actually less than 5 years and that's because not just us but other organization but we were in the lead of it we stepped in and said okay then we need to start cracking in and digging in get the machines in you know and and there was all this talk about okay we need to bring in these like super specialized uh, uh, machines from all over the the world to come in, it's going to be so expensive and all this stuff. I shit you not, you had by hand taking down those concrete buildings and collecting the, the rebar by hand using buckets. The power of what we can do as human beings, as individuals, and just taking a piece and chunk of what we can was proven 
in one of the worst disasters that we've experienced in our recent history. And seeing that basically really led to us jumping into the COVID space as well. You know, it was this constant, you know, you hear this constant cacophony of like why we shouldn't be doing it. It's impossible. This is going to take forever. It's just so overwhelming. What's our small part going to do? I've seen it. I've seen what these small things can do when you aggregate them and you inspire other partners, other people to jump in and take part in it. And you know, again, in COVID, when we were sitting here in Los Angeles and seeing what was happening around the world, we knew we needed to do something. It was an imperative. And it felt like so overwhelming. You know, what are we going to do with a global pandemic? What's our piece in this? What do we know about testing? We don't have any medical experts on our team. We've never done a major, you know, health response, let alone in the United States. There's all these things, all these things that we've told ourselves of like why it didn't make any sense. But I don't know if it's from just pure, you know, I think Sean and I have this 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 element in us where we're too stupid to know what we don't know and too stupid oh. to be scared. Yes. <laughs> and um so we felt very strongly like, well, let's just try. You know, mm-hmm. we have to try. We have to do what we can. So we literally bought, I think, a few thousand test kits, which is like nothing in the scheme of things. But we're like, well, we're going to learn. And in that process, we got hooked up with the Los Angeles mayor's office because I asked the mayor's office, like, look, we have just a few tests. Send us to a high, mm-hmm. um, you know, a, a, a high COVID rate community with low income and we're going to set up there and he said why, rather than that why don't you come and run try out and run one of these these test things that we're doing tomorrow that we're starting tomorrow so we did and that first day we brought our friends and family volunteers to to, to work the site and we were asked at the end of the day are you guys ready to take over three more sites in the next three days? We're like, yeah, for sure. Meanwhile, sweating, being like calling all of our friends. Can you call your cousins and aunts (laughs) and uncles to see who can work the site? And at the end of the day, across the United States, we ended up having, you know, close to 3000 folks working these sites and doing these tests. And again, it, it, it was Haiti that taught us to, drown out all the reasons why you can't, you shouldn't, or why it's impossible. And to believe in the incredible power of individuals coming together and doing their small piece and having that tipping tipping point and aggregate that into incredible miracles. And that's where I feel like our role is in any community when we respond it's not to do the big you know we're going to save this city you know it's literally to go in and talk to the incredible communities that are already doing this and say hey how can we increase what you're doing how can we you know build on what you're doing how can we catch this fire um and so we we hope that that's 
that's something that's helpful for others to also kind of look at in that way. Well, I, I don't think it matters what size or scope of a nonprofit organization that you have. It's the audacity of saying yes. And it's that whole, uh, okay, without hesitation, we'll just figure it out. You know, instead of waiting for, well, what particular machine should we wait for? No, you just got up and did it. And I think that yeah. type of attitude is um, mostly found in the nonprofit realm because nobody else is mm-hmm. going to do it. And, uh, yeah. you know, your organization and everybody else's organization exists because either the government can or won't do whatever it needs to do in order to make our communities better, right? There are gaps in services and funding. And um, the initial audacity of even starting something like that or doing something like that is is an indicator enough that you as a nonprofit leader, you know, whether you're listening on here or you're a, you're a future <laughs> nonprofit leader yourself, the fact of the matter is, is that you are a part of something that nobody else has come up with a solution for. You're, you're the craziest human being that you know doing the craziest work that nobody else is doing. Um, and so it's that yes, that audacity of yes, we don't know what it's going to do or what it's going to be, but we're going to get dirty immediately. And we'll figure it out along the way. And the nonprofits that hesitate and wait for seven layers of approval and, well, I don't know what they're going to do, are going to be stalled forever because that's not how any of this sort of attitude to get the stuff done works. And I think I love that as a perspective of like, it's not the completion of the project, but it's the act of doing that actually moves the needle forward. And I, I love that as a perspective. I love that as a perspective. So much of, of what we figure out, you can't get there until you're actually doing it. It's iterative, right? Because every situation is so different. So getting a toe on the ground is so important for you to then, you know, understand, okay, what I did there doesn't make sense. we got to go in this direction. So it's really taking that first step early and, and, and just starting to do it that I think makes the difference. And the biggest thing, what I, I, I'm so conscious of, especially going through, you know, COVID and, and some of these big disasters that we've done is, is the risk of inaction is sometimes greater than any sort of perceived risks that you have. And so that's something that, needs to be weighed right so yes there's risks of like you know i remember early on when we were looking when we were doing some reconstruction in haiti and there was fear of like well maybe five years from now the 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 house that we helped build might crack and fall and then we'll be liable and i'm like okay the risk right now versus that of being out on the streets and the elements in an insecure community um is much greater right so it's, it's about weighing those things. And it's the same thing with COVID. Yes, like we didn't know how to do vaccines. <laughs> we don't have a medical staff. Like luckily we brought on partners to do that. But the, the, the fear of all the things that could go wrong can stop mm-hmm. anyone from doing anything. But I think the greater risk of, you know, being in an, it, as we all remember what COVID was like during lockdown, that was also a much greater risk for us to be stuck in. Yeah. Well, and again, it goes back to that. When did nonprofits be risk adverse? You know, it's this temptation to not do anything to upset the apple cart because somebody might get upset about whatever happens. Mm -hmm. Well, that's not how any, like you can't base 
an organization on the fear of someone saying something or something happening when you're just making it up in your brain because you're catastrophizing whatever uh, solution that you're coming up with, which is which is just a, a fascinating concept that we just adopted in the nonprofit realm. And so when you find an organization like yourself that just kind of bucks the norm on that, um, it needs to be called out and, and celebrated. You know, when we're, when we're talking about disaster relief and we're talking about humanitarian issues, um, fundraising comes into a really big play, right? You can't mm-hmm. do it. There's no money, no mission. You can't do this. I mean, you could do it for free, but that is going to require you to pay for something at some point, either travel or food or, or, or whatever. Um, what the ch- there's a couple of challenges here um, that I'd love to discuss is how do you fundraise for a disaster that doesn't immediately have a connection to me? in flyover country, mm. North Dakota. Mm. I might have it's, visited yeah. the islands before, right? I might have visited the Caribbean. It's a beautiful place. And I got to stay at a hotel with a little beach umbrella and I had a cocktail. But when my day-to-day life is not affected by mm-hmm. any of this uh, in a country that most people couldn't even find on a map, how do you fundraise for that type of work? Mm-hmm. It's so hard. It is so hard. And, you know, so much of funding is driven by the cameras, which is very, very frustrating. Yeah, it's 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 human nature, right? We we, we feel compelled um, when something kind of touches us personally. So I get that. Um, what's difficult is when we have so many disasters that are happening, like Sudan, you know, we have, you know, Chad from the Sudan crisis, and there's all these things that are happening that don't get the airtime, and therefore get zero funding, not just from the general public, but even from large institutions. I mean, it's quite frustrating. I think that there needs to be an absolute overhaul on the reliance of, you know, sort of the media driving where funding goes, because they're doing their job, right? They're basically covering what is you know, the most relevant for their region. and But that's not exactly sort of <laughs> the way we want to look at how we want to fund crises around the world. Certainly not right? helpful. So, no, no. So I, I don't have the answer for that because we struggle with it so much. You know, one way that we try to sort of mitigate that is to bring on people who can speak to those crises, right? So you know, we ask several of our, our our supporters who have a platform to start speaking about Sudan, to start speaking about the food crisis in Haiti, because, you know, Haiti's just kind of seen as like, oh, it's a mess anyway, it's not going to make a difference. So, you know, all of these things make it quite frustrating for us. Um, there's a, there's some background noise. Can I just get oh, up no, and close the window? Okay. Could we, yeah, yeah. Okay, hold on one second. Yeah. So, so that actually brings up an interesting point that I have uh, a question about is when it is so camera heavy, when, when, when mm-hmm. you know where it is required that you show what is going on, mm-hmm. the balance between reality and inspiration porn is almost blurred. And how do you, mm-hmm. as someone who runs an organization like this, right? Mm-hmm. How do you navigate that very precarious and almost um, personal 
you know, mm-hmm. line between mm-hmm. what we should show to get the extreme reality of what's happening. And, oh, my God, I feel guilty mm-hmm. enough that I need to fundraise for. Because that's got to be mm-hmm. insanely frustrating, especially with those, you know, crises that you're involved in that get zero coverage that nobody could mm-hmm. even recognize at, or consider even an issue. Mm-hmm. For us, you know, having been on the side of the receiving end, and that's why Sean and I did not like each other. Because the minute he walked in, I was like rolling my eyes and like being like, ah, you know, because, you know, I had seen, I, I was living in Haiti when the earthquake hit, right? And so having been on the receiving end of all of these cameras, all of this interest was important. I knew it was important, but it was frustrating when it felt like it was, you know, poverty porn, it was disaster porn. Yeah. And you know, because of that, again, it just so informed our culture and why I think Sean and I became such fast friends. Like he was so sensitive. Like he banned Facebook when Facebook was a thing back then. He banned cameras. He banned, you know, any video taking. Like you were fired on his work site if if anything was captured and shared. Um, and, you know, I think we have a very incredible... I don't know. We have a sensitivity to that from Haiti, right? Having seen sort of, you know, the 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 disaster porn, people just kind of flying in and flying out on the same day and such, and not really helping, but just taking photos and stuff. Mm-hmm. And that was really it felt it felt ugly. And so Sean and I have always been sensitive about that stuff. And you know, he gets, you know, we both get frustrated with, with ourselves and that, you know, we're not great at like kind of going out there and being like, this is what we're doing or we're out here and we're doing this, which is hard because that's what gets the funding. Right. But at the same time, it's just not us. And it's Mm -hmm. not the way that we want to represent the folks that are doing the response who are often, you know, the majority of our responders are people from the community. And the last thing that they think about during that time is being like, on camera and being like, Hey, this is what's happening, but it's still important. And we do it at their pace and what their comfort level is, is trying to get their story out and, and and incredibly inspiring stories Mm -hmm. um, and to show the impact that they're making in their community. So we really put the onus on them and we really put the sort of, you know, the storytelling from their perspective, because you know, our whole ethos is around doing this from the inside out. We want to sort of hire up locally and kind of, you know, build that response from internal to external. And and so much of that is not just for emergency response, but, you know, we're very interested in the recovery phase, right? When people kind of lose, when the cameras leave and sort of when these communities are still struggling, you know, for us, that's really a place where we focus in on. I mean, there's a disaster. Let's see, the I forget which hurricane it was, but it was in 2018 or 19 in North Carolina that we responded to, and we're still there. And our teams who have rebuilt, you know, roofs and done all this work, you know, worked with them through COVID. Our manager Linda, who is such a badass. Oh my God. She's amazing. Who is a grandmother from the Lumbee tribe and is just killing it is just keeps, you know, she, she has been such a huge 
inspiration to us. So it's again, like, it's not just supporting the community, but that community who has gone through these disasters now is helping other places, you know? And so we deploy her to other disasters, like in Georgia and like in, you know, Florida. Um, So we feel like there's a hugely important um, give back that these communities can do having gone through this. Well, what what I think you just said there is really important too. I think when nonprofits look for like where are we going to get the funding, where are we going to get the stories, um, I think everyone looks externally as the solution when internally those that are either going through it or those experiencing it or those getting the help are the ones that are going to be your biggest cheerleaders. So your funders and your storytellers and your enthusiastic cheerleaders are all the ones that are circling around you. And instead of leaning on them to help mm-hmm. spread that particular message, I think we are ingrained in if i don't get enough likes on this nobody cares right and those that that vanity metric is Mm -hmm. so prevalent in the nonprofit industry because that's how our boards justify if we're doing well that's how the public sees us as being effective they're like well this person doesn't get 300 likes on this whole post they clearly Mm -hmm. are doing Mm -hmm. uh, well Mm -hmm. enough and we've we've convinced ourselves that of and so it's probably even more difficult because of everybody's attention span being the the, the length of gnats currently, mm-hmm. that you have to get everything condensed down to a soundbite and then yeah. put it on social to even get acknowledged in a, an algorithm that notoriously doesn't want to go and help you because it's not entertaining because exactly. it's serious um, business as well. So I, 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 I just so appreciate the candor that mm-hmm. says, you know, you as an entity that is in how many countries currently? Oof, I think like at least four or five. Four or five countries. So your organization, when you're listening to this, your organization that is in four or five community blocks is experiencing the same thing that an internationally prevalent organization is experiencing too. And and I just need to hammer that back into people's brains is that it is everyone. This is an everyone's problem. This is not just a mm-hmm. big or a small entity. These are the same issues that are coming up in board meetings and in leadership committee meetings and in individual conversations like this on how we fix this audacity of yes, but also mm-hmm. you know, sort of connecting with those that you're helping first and foremost. I think that's just so critically important to have this particular conversation. I so appreciate um, those thoughts. I really do. Yeah, it's hard. And it's something we need to change, though. I don't have the solution for it. It's like, Mm. how do we, how do we do this? Yeah. Well, another, another question too, on the, how do we do this piece? And and I, and I, if you're willing to just kind of go down the little mini rabbit hole um, is um, when we think about humanitarian crises, crises, and we think about humanitarian work. Um, we think of the freshly uh, white tents. We think mm-hmm. of the uh, everyone is in order, an orderly line, mm-hmm. and everything seems to be managed <laughs> wonderfully. Because, listen, if you're a manager of a crisis, you clearly have all your crap together, right? Right, right. Talk a little bit about some of the background noise that occurs. Um, because, again, as we said at the top of the show, you know, the sunshine and rainbows mentality on crisis work is sometimes at a detriment because you don't understand the nuance of let's just be on people. Um, right. Is there, is there anything that you can kind of maybe speak to on, on some of the maybe behind the scenes items that you just don't think about when you are looking at this from a larger picture on what goes on 
during a crisis when you right. come in to help? Yeah, I mean, it is, it's, there's always the good and the bad, but often times I think, you know, speaking about sort of the funding element to it and sort of the visibility piece and how that plays into it, there's such a huge amount of really weird competition that comes out between organizations, um, whether it's like a space or this location or this community. And it's it's really fascinating and it always really interested me um, because, you know, we could go so much further if we coordinated better and we're like working together, right? Yep. But with with competition of scarce resources and the way that the system has laid out, like how you get the funding, it doesn't, it, it's creating this like really awful competitive space, you know? And it's, it can get very ugly, you know? It can get very ugly, sabotaging. There's like some crazy stuff that, that happens. Mm-hmm. Um, I have to say for the most part, you know, like, the majority of times, you know, we have partners that we always see. And so there's always a vested interest. And so we have positive relationships and it's great and we love working with them. But sometimes you see that that element that's there and it's really ugly and it, it, it hurts. It hurts because it's sort of like, God, we're wasting so much energy on this BS that we could be, you know, tr- you know, focusing on on something better. Um, but again, I think it's a function of what we were just speaking about. It is how the funding mechanisms are, and it's quite frustrating. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I also think, though, you know, on the backside of it as well, there's. I think this is changing, which I'm excited about. But there's also like sort of this idea, this you know, kind of prototype of what a humanitarian looks like, right? They like come in in their boots and their, you know, vests with their logos emblazoned. And, you know, they're like, they're like, you know, going to go in and break stuff, you know, and, and go hard and like, you know, no sleep and all that stuff. And what you get is a lot of burnt out individuals who have seen a lot of shit and Mm. also need to be, um, more careful about their own mental health. And I think that that's something that's changed in our space. It hasn't gone far enough. We need mm-hmm. to do better. But I do think that that's also a huge um, kind of a reckoning of, you know, that, that quintessential uh, cowboy that came in to, to, you know, to these disasters to start something more sort of softer. Yeah. Well, it's more thoughtful and purposeful, too. Rather mm-hmm. than just going guns ablazing, um, exactly being a little more purposeful, and I think that's probably at the end of the day where where everybody needs to meet, um, and that's yeah. going to help your funders. I think you know be a little more understanding on the length of time something's going to take. It's going to allow somebody the grace to be you know um, not clear on what the end game is because you're not coming in kind of all um, hectic and crazy. And I think that's probably the better response to a lot of this too, this methodical yet aggressive approach to, you know, mm-hmm. solving mm-hmm. a lot of these problems. I know we're coming up on the end of our uh, time together. And that um, makes me very sad. So we talked like four hours on this topic. I really <laughs> appreciate your time, but I'd love to leave. Um, uh, a lot of this is like, oh man, this is just, everything is just a disaster, pun intended. But 
<laughs> while you are working in this space, do you, um, is, is there a, are there bright, shiny moments or is there a moment or, or there regular scheduled moments where you're like, okay, I think humanity for all its faults and its craziness still got it. And I think, you know, are are there moments there where you're like, regardless of whatever dark this is, um, can we just count on each other? Are you finding that we can do that? Um, Because I I feel like even in our own little small spaces, whether a board member is not having an agreement with us or we don't think the state is funding us enough or we have a program that fails miserably because it wasn't done to its expectations, I think we can get into this really dark place. You're in the darkest of places. Um, I'd love your perspective on either philanthropy in general or nonprofit work on where you see giving and um, giving back, regardless of its time, talent, or treasure. On the faith in humanity piece, I definitely have in the last few years have, you know, because of the divisions that we see in the United States have become a lot more sort of cynical and negative and like, what is, what is it all for? And like all of the things, you know, and and the frustrations of, of, of just our current situation in this, in this sector, right. With failing institutions that don't match what we're doing and failing funding mechanisms that aren't, um, you know, reacting in the way that it should be. So yeah, in the last few years, I've been quite frustrated. And there's been times where I'm like, I don't even know why, why we should continue. What's the point? And I always get slapped in the face. When I get to that point, um, we have these monthly webinars with our staff, where we have our team members, you know, because we're so spread out everywhere, where they highlight the work that they do and the people that, and the impact that they're making themselves. And every single time I will, I go there and I'm like, Oh, you know, it's, I think I can only make it for 30 minutes and, you know, it's hour long. And I sit through it and I am weeping when I get out because it's our team who are from the communities that are impacted, who are telling how in helping other people, they have changed their own lives. And every single, I'm crying right now because every time I walk out of there, it's like, of course, of course, this is it. And I remember during COVID early on when we were so clueless as to how this affected us, right? We were out there on these sites in full hazmat gear, like fully covered with gloves with goggles, with the scary, you know, hazmat suit, mat, you know, body, body suits and stuff. And walking around was quite frightening. And, you know, we were hiring so many people and asking for so many volunteers because we kept on increasing the number of sites that we were managing. I never had a shortage of a single volunteer who raised their hands to say, I want to be a part of this, not knowing if it could kill them, how scary it would be, its impact. Never, not in any city, did we have a shortage of volunteers. To me, despite all of the noise, when I get depressed about 
the state of this world. I think about that moment. And I remember that when we're in it, when we're doing this stuff, like people turn out and you see the best of humanity, you know, going to Ukraine and seeing and Poland and seeing like these mothers, these grandmothers that just were taking families in that were like, please come stay with us. It's like, yes, we're going to be okay as a as a human race right I, I i think and i believe that because of what i've seen in the darkest of places i think um i i i know i agree with you and i think most people do and um that reflection on the work that you do and regardless of whatever organization you work for take some time and just remember like what you're mm-hmm. actually doing and uh, I think we get so busy with the next thing I have to do, the next program I've got to run, whatever this funding is going to come. We forget to celebrate some of those wins. And, and here in, again, here in flyover country, we don't like bragging about stuff. So we won't we'll keep it in and we won't talk about, you know, what we've done in successes. And in order to maintain your enthusiasm, I think you really have to, because I think it'll do exactly um, what you just said. I know that there are going to be some people who want to know more about your organization, but they might not know where to go to find out. So, Anne, how do we find you? How do we give lots of money? And if you're sitting at home and you're on a mattress full of dollar bills, I think you know exactly where to send it. (laughs) But maybe you have a specific place you want it. Where do we go to find all this information? You can go to www.coreresponse.org. Perfect. Uh, we will put those in the show notes as well as a bunch of other links so that you can go and follow everything that they Thank are you. doing. And uh, by the way, Mike, sure, if you are on the interwebs and you haven't, uh, you know, signed up for this show and you're not a <laughs> subscriber, you should do that. The five star rating. This is the type of guest that we get here uh, because uh, it's meaningful to your nonprofit and your organizations. Uh, and a couple of things. Uh, number one, thank you for your time and your perspective and your general awesomeness. Uh, number two, thanks thank for your you. badassery. Uh, just doing this type of work, it is um, probably not as uh, grateful uh, from the outside world as it should be on a regular basis. But I'm so glad that you find these moments where you get clarity on the why that you do the work. Uh, but mostly, thank you so much for being a guest here on the official Do Good Better podcast. Thanks for having me, Patrick. Fundraising is hard. And as a listener to this podcast, I hope you found some insight and tips and tricks on how to make it a little less challenging. But if you're looking for a lot more content, done-for-you templates, weekly support, and a community of other do-gooders like yourself to commiserate, challenge, co-create, or celebrate with, I want to invite you to join Do Good University. It's our brand new membership site. We're going to have hours of on-demand trainings, exclusive guest expert webinars, and access to the Do Good Better crew to answer all of your pressing questions, all for an affordable monthly fee. So visit dogooduniversity.com or click the link in the show notes 